Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Isabel Bernie is a co-founder and COO of Vaqueo, a real estate management platform that transforms underperforming rental homes into generous passive income streams for landlords. In her role as COO, Isabel oversees growth and management of their vacation rental portfolio, operating in four cities on both coasts. She co-founded Vaqueo with her husband, Truth, in 2016, and they've been bootstrapping their way to a million dollars in revenue. Around that time, Airbnb and other sharing economy startups were gaining traction in 2011. Elizabeth, sorry, Isabel discovered her passion in the industry and the potential to use real estate as passive income. Isabel, looking forward to hearing from you. You guys are in a crazy competitive space, but a really exciting space as well. Tell us, um, tell us about your model and how it maybe differs from some of the others that are out there. Right. So the space itself is competitive, but we actually have a little niche within it because we're offering, you know, guaranteed higher income to landlords. We furnish the properties completely, so there's no out-of-pocket expense for landlords. And then we're also targeting the single-family home market, which is kind of like a forgotten market in terms of the managers. Many of them, um, that, you know, they really want to go to condos because it's a little bit easier to just like work with a big developer or landlord and, you know, move into 20, 30 condos at once. But we, um, we're targeting single family homes, which is a lot of, you know, small time landlords that maybe they had a house, they moved out and, you know, now this is an income, you know, generating property for them, but it wasn't, it, it's not necessarily working for them in terms of, you know, all the demands of um, managing the short term rental. So we take all that on and absorb all the upfront costs. And then, you know, we both profit um, month to month. So these are longer term rentals that you're doing then, not just short term? Well, we actually go after the long term market. So we will, um, you know, reach out to landlords on Zillow, landlords that normally had long term tenants, and then we convert their home into a short term rental. So we're able to make our margins above a long-term rental. You know, short-term rentals on average make around 60% over long-term rentals, something people don't necessarily know. But with the proliferation of Airbnb and, you know, all these websites, even Booking.com and Expedia getting in the game, um, you know, there's a lot of profit to be had. So we take, um, you know, we take the larger share of the profit, but we guarantee the landlord the 10% extra. Interesting. Do you deal with the insurance industry much in your space? We had to um, to move into a house a couple of years ago due to a, a restoration and a renovation from a um, insurance claim, and the insurance company were paying a huge amount of money to a, a homeowner to put us in their house. Do you deal with them at all? Yeah, we have. Uh, we work with Proper Insurance, so we partnered with them. They um, do exclusively vacation rental insurance. Um, occasionally, not often, you know, once a year or less, we have to deal with Airbnb's host guarantee and they have their own insurance that guarantees up to a million dollars. So we're basically double insured. No, and, I'm sorry. I meant the insurance oh. companies that are paying, like when I had a, I had a claim at my house, oh, they had to then yeah. go put me up in a house and they found the house for me. They paid for it, but they were paying like $16,000 a month for me to be in a house wow. that I think I probably could have rented for eight. Yeah. So maybe they, you know, got taken advantage of there. I mean, we've definitely had homeowners, you know, that have homes have been damaged and they've come to us, but we've actually never, we haven't directly uh, dealt with insurance companies on that, but we, you know, especially like when there was a hurricane and, you know, things like that. Um, we've, 
we've been there and we've helped people who are displaced or, um, you know, we're renovating their home. We get that all the time. And you said you're on both coasts. So what cities do you focus on currently? So our two top cities are San Diego and Miami. Um, right this moment, and they happen to be the two top vacation rental markets in the country. Right this moment, I'm actually down in Miami and we're really focused on growing our Miami market. Um, there's just, it's high season in Miami and it's kind of funny, like high season in Miami for short-term rentals is slow season for long-term rentals. Like nobody's moving in the winter, but everyone wants to, all the snowbirds, everyone wants to be here. Mm -hmm. So it's actually really great for Vicao because we have, you know, so many landlords that, you know, their homes have been sitting on the market and then we have lots of guests that need places to stay. So we're really focused on Miami right now. And you said you guys are actually furnishing and paying for the furnishing of the places? Yeah, we do. We uh, partnered with Wayfair. Um, on the West Coast, we're actually, um, there's a company called Feather that we're working with, and they, um, we rent furniture from them. So that's good. It lowers our CAC a little bit. We can rent the furniture. Um, but they haven't, I mean, as soon as they're on the East Coast, we would be taking advantage of it. But um, with Wayfair, you know, through our partnership, they give us great deals and um, they're partnered with Handy. So they put the Handy will put the furniture together and they do it all within 48 hours. Super, super quick. So, oh, nice little model. Yeah. So tell, tell me about what part of the business you're focusing on. I guess you guys started the, the business off about seven years ago. Talk yeah. a little about the trajectory and, and what's changed in your role over those years as well. <laughs> Well, I mean, we started it as a side hustle. You know, we both had corporate jobs that we hated, you know, um, and we didn't feel like we were a good fit for corporate America. But we started when, you know, Airbnb was just becoming popular and it was a side gig. And then we realized that it could be much more just because there's even in New York landlords that, ha that deal with vacancy risk, especially in the winter. So we started growing. And um, before, I mean, I would say I really did a bunch of everything, of course, like any, you know, any entrepreneur, when you're just starting out, you're doing everything. I would even greet the guests. We did have a cleaner, but I would do pretty much everything else, correspond with all the guests. Now, you know, I have a team and we also have a, um, you know, in New York, but we also have a remote team out of the Philippines that does all the bookings and reservations. So my big focus is I, I'm actually running, you know, operations and then I would say slash sales. So I have somebody who helps me with growth. Um, you know, in terms of partnerships, but I'm still overseeing, you know, our inside sales, you know, making sure that landlords are happy with our leasing process. Um, so I would say that's about 60 to 70% of my work. And then the other, um, let's say 30% is overseeing operations. Interesting. What, how many total employees do you have full-time, part-time do you think in the, in the organization? <laughs> Well, we're still, I mean, we're still like small in terms of our U.S. So we have eight employees, so small. And then we have about 17 employees in the Philippines. Um, and doing a lot of great work, you know, basically making sure that all our guests are happy and well taken care of. And then we have a lot of independent contractors. So they're not full on employees because we partner with Superhosts. So we have about uh, 26 Superhosts between our different cities, managing all the properties. Some manage one, some manage up to six or seven. So it's, um, you know, they are independent contractors, like I said, um, even yeah. though they're not part of the team. You've got the complexity of running about a 40, 50 person company at this point with, with all the different moving parts. That's, and that's kind of what it felt like from the different groups you're starting to talk about. Walk me through some of the, um, I always love the startup phases and you guys are past startup now. And I think in a way, you know, I'm not going to ask you your age, but when Isabel was five, 
um, she was Isabel. When she was 15, she was Isabel. When she was 25, she was Isabel. I'm not sure if you're into your 30s yet, but if you're 35, you're Isabel. But okay, but you, but you change, right? Like as you were 1, 11, 21, 31, you're the same person, but you evolve, and our companies have to evolve as well. So what do you think? What were some of the early things that you were like, yes, this is perfect for Vakeo, and then now you're like, that was a dumb idea, or we've evolved and iterated out of that. What are the things that maybe you used to do that you no longer do that we can learn from? Right. Um, oh my God, there's so many things, so many, so many mistakes, so many things. Um, I used to think that um, just because our revenue was strong, I could focus on, you know, making sure all the design was perfect. Like I could be more hands off with the operations and just hire out a lot of that. And I realized that for the kite for hospitality business, you really have to be hands on, you know, as a manager and you can't let anything slide through the cracks. Um, I think that we like, you know, we bootstrapped and then it really took off pretty quickly. And we were one of the first people even offering um, short-term rentals in terms of like a, in professional managers in New York. And I think that I was a little bit like um, blinded by that or, it, you know, I, I thought it was just going to be this glamorous thing now. And then I realized that when we got to Miami, it was like square one in terms of hiring and managing and training. So I think that, you know, just the cautionary tale is, you know, basically that you're, you're never – you know, as long as you're growing, you're never done really with the management and training and you never can take your eye off the ball. You can't get too comfortable. Even if you're not cleaning places or checking in guests, you have to, it's good sometimes to just get back to your homes. And for me, go see them, make sure everything's the way it used to be. Because obviously as you scale, there's always the risk of quality going down. Um, but that was something that I, you know, had to learn. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to a CEO a few years ago, and we were laughing about the whole the people side of the business. I call it the pain in the ass side, but it's hard. People people make everything a little bit more complicated, and, and because there's no real rule book for for it, and it doesn't matter what size you get to, people are still the the big one to try to figure out how do you um, how do you get your your team aligned with your vision and with the vision that you guys have as a couple, where you're taking the company. How do you get them aligned with that vision so that they're making it happen for you? Um, a lot of times I think like just simple little ways, like I'll just pop up, you know, on Slack with like exciting news about a partnership, you know, or, um, a landlord that has a lot of properties and I'll just share, you know, oh, we're moving into these properties and, you know, take pictures or video or even bring, um, you know, like my operations person to the property so she can just kind of like get a sense of the excitement of, you know, that the growth is, is really exciting. Um, and, you know, when we get positive reviews from landlords or guests, I always try to make sure that everybody in the team is celebrating, you know, every little victory and they're all a part of it. They don't feel like, especially if they're in the Philippines and they can't physically be here. Um, you know, I still send them like the KO swag and stuff like that because it's sometimes just the little things to remind them that, um, you know, or this is like a landmark for us. This is a new city. You know, this is like a revenue goal we tried to reach. So how do you, how do you keep the Philippines? I guess the same, is it a different culture in the Philippines than it is with your, your U S team where you try to have the same culture to kind of blend all those operations? How do you work through that? 
Yeah, I mean, the team in the Philippines is obviously, you know, you're dealing with a different culture, and I always, you know, they're fantastic, but it definitely took years for me to find, like, the core 15 people that I found in the Philippines and the people that really understand, you know, the business and the sense of urgency, and, and they're, they're passionate. I see them posting on Facebook about the business, which makes me really happy that even though, and, I, you know, I want to go visit them because I haven't gotten to that yet. I've been so, like, swamped with the KO, but I know I need to, we need to do like a big KO trip to the Philippines. But um, the culture of definitely, you know, I have like my little manual that I send to them. And when I am, you know, interviewing or onboarding somebody, um, I always make sure that the, that our um, freelancers in the Philippines understand that they're an important part of the team and that this, you know, it's not a strict hierarchical structure. It's a very open environment and everyone has a voice and is expected to speak up which I think for a lot of them shocks them maybe they've worked for like IBM some of these huge companies and they're not used to you know chiming in on a lot of things so we do a lot of you know team meetings we try to do once a week team meeting where everyone can state no matter who they are you know issues or things they want to improve upon things we're doing well not doing well yeah, give them a, can you give us a specific example of a time with someone over there that you've had to really work with them to help them speak up more? Because it is a very different cultural norm. I was coaching a CEO from um, Thailand, and his second-in-command, quite strong, just kept telling me, I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to disappoint him. I'm like, dude, like he thinks you're amazing. But they're so worried about saving face and not disappointing and saying the right thing that they often don't say the stuff that we need to hear. Can you walk us through one specific? I am always writing down examples of that and adding them to guidebooks to help them because that is a huge pain point for our business in general. And I always give an example, you know, um, there was one, I think, what was it? Maybe like a few months ago, there was one guest that um, was having trouble with the code. And for some reason, I think they, they were from Asia and the translation wasn't going well. And it was actually a home that I had recently vetted every, you know, every month I'll go a month, they'll go vet some homes. So I was totally familiar with, you know, this home and I, they let the guests, I think, wait out there for like two hours until they finally got our super host was able to get there and let the guest in, but the guest left a bad review. And I was like, if you had only, cause I, I, you know, you make like escalation manuals. If you had only escalated it to me or, you know, my assistant, somebody would have been able to help you, but they felt so like, um, bewildered or they just, they, they were so scared that I would be upset that I was bothering them. And I was, you know, that they were bothering me. And I'm like, never just get that out of your head. Please bother me. I want you to bother all of us all day. That's your job. You know? So that's why that's how I always try to say, please bother us. If you're bothering us, you're doing your job. If you're not bothering us, you're not doing your job. And obviously that can go too far the other way, but I let it be that way in the beginning while they learn. And then over time I'll be you know, my operations person or and I will just be like, Okay, well that's actually on the manual, you know, because you still want them to initiative, but the the flip side of that is a lot of things can slide through the cracks and, and, you know, they don't learn proper escalation. So I think escalation training is really important for anybody from, you know, different culture where um, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, there's a lot of, there's a strict hierarchical structure and there's a lot of um, division between boss and employee. So we try to 
that down. Well, and it's also even in North America, you've got people that are more dominant, more expressive versus people that are more analytical and amiable. And, and even though it's not a cultural norm, people just are either more polite or more reserved or more quiet. Um, you know, if you put a bunch of salespeople in a room and a bunch of writers in a room, who's going to talk more? The salespeople. You know? Right. So or if you're from New York, you know how to express yourself. Right. So I, <laughs> I wonder think if we're actually, very confrontational people overall. So that's never been it's something that's been hard for me to understand. Like just confront me. You know, what's right. the big deal? Something's going on. Well, I wonder if almost showing people some written examples of how to confront and how to have that radical candor, like good and bad, and, and then maybe a video like where you have the same people, you know, you maybe you have someone from the Philippines role play with you what a bad radical candor would look like or not doing it, what a good one would be to kind of show the example. We used to do it with our clothing examples of our teams at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. When I was building that company up, we would show the kind of good branding examples and the bad branding. It was so obvious. Like everyone was like, oh, shit, I see it now, right? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a really good idea, actually. So they can kind of learn by example and, and yeah and so we would show them good and bad good and bad good and, like a good truck bad truck a good dress code bad dress code. they go okay i get it like it was so clear right and then yeah because that the manager yeah. shouldn't have to squeeze this out of an employee yeah problem you know what, what happened <laughs> so are you guys offering is, is new york then your head office or do you have a head office or are you mostly remote now no new york is our head office and then we have an office in san diego small and in miami so when uh, next time you're out in San Diego, I want you to go visit one of my clients, um, a company called Billy Jean Marketing. I don't know if you know Billy Jean, but I've definitely heard of it. Yeah, I know. I heard the name, but I don't know. Take a look at some of his videos on YouTube. They're hysterical. What the, my favorite one is still the Wolf of Advertising, and it was basically a, a spinoff of the Wolf of Wall Street, and it was a just making fun of that whole thing, but they are brilliant marketers, but their culture in their space is fantastic, and they just opened some new office space, so He's just a good guy to know in the San Diego market. Um, so, so walk us through yourself then, your, your growth as a leader in, in the years since you started the company and um, you know, running it now today. How have you changed and grown over the years? Well, I was very young you know, when we started. I was 20, you know, like when we started running the business, I was 25. Um, and I didn't know much because I had very little even you know, true job experience. I had worked a couple you know, at Omnicom and a year at, at, at financial firm, but I didn't have a lot of experience, didn't have a lot of leadership experience at all. Um, but I definitely have learned over the years that, you know, different, my management style, I'm definitely not um, by nature a micromanager. Um, so I've learned a happy balance where um, I, I, I want to lead, and I want to empower, and I want to, you know, be able to let people make decisions um, because obviously micromanaging in a business like ours is a nightmare. You know, there's so many people to manage. You're managing super hosts, you're managing landlord relationships, you're managing guests coming from all over the world. Mm -hmm. So it's just not a great business if you don't have competent employees. And I've learned over the years how to differentiate um, and, and that I think Ray Dalio said it best that if you have to micromanage, you know, once you've done the basic training and given them the tools, if you have to micromanage someone, get rid of them. And that's been a very hard for me, hard lesson to learn. And, you know, having to obviously let people go is, is never easy. It's always, you know, it, it always feels, um, you know, it, it always feels like a loss, but you have to, fire fast, you know, for any start in order to get to the next level. 
So um, as a leader, I've learned to kind of um, build the guts to be able to do that and trust my intuition because it almost never fails you when it comes to people. Um, so I'll try to write down, I, I listen to Ray Dalio a lot and I copy a lot of his principles, but I also have been trying to um, adopt them in terms of getting tons of feedback about employees and being able to make those notes and then review them every so often so that everybody is growing in their role. Um, those are, those are really big uh, for me. Um, and also for me also never in the beginning, I used to lose my cool a lot, you know, not like abusive, but just like get really upset and worked up. And because, you know, the stakes are high. Sometimes you have an $8,000 reservation that one little thing can go wrong and, you know, it can be a thousands of dollars refunded or some sort of disaster. So I've learned that that never serves you well in any situation, you know, even, you know, in any kind of situation, um, don't lose your cool because you lose your power when you lose your cool. Well, we lose our power. And I think we also, people, um, yeah, we, we lose our power. And then I think people also kind of question us as leaders if we can't stay within it. I, I've had to really teach my team and, and, over the years, all my teams that I'm a bit of an emotional train wreck. You know, I, one day I'm, I think I'm going to take over the world. And then four hours later, just like I'm stressed and scared about something. And then I went back to, wow, today was great. And they're like, did you not remember that four hours ago you thought we were going to lose the company? I'm like, no, that was just whatever. I was just thinking out loud. Um, so they kind of wonder whether you got your shit together, but I think it's just part of our DNA as well. Yeah. Well, you hear in movies and stuff, people losing their cool and like you hear of all these, you know, big time entrepreneurs losing their cool, but then you realize that it just doesn't work. No. Well, and it actually doesn't even work for them. I mean, you know, Steve, Steve Jobs at Apple was famous for, for being a, a bit of an uh, emotional train wreck, bipolar, hypomanic. And, um, but they also, the culture at Apple was not a great culture. You know, they were a spectacular company. And I always wonder, wow, what kind of a leader, what kind of a company could Apple be today if Steve Jobs had the ability, the emotional intelligence to just temper himself 15%, you know, 20%, because then I think it could have been um, like even, like we all have rooms to grow, right? Like here, here I am criticizing Steve Jobs, but like we all have areas to improve. I love that you keep kept mentioning Ray Dalio's book, Principles. Have you read um, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things? Not yet. I need to read that. I have it on, I have it on audio. I need to read that. I would I buy the hard copy. Book like five times. Yeah, buy the hard copy version <laughs> of Hard Thing About Hard Things, and you will yeah, be scribbling notes and underlining. It's going to be like a textbook. It's really, really great sound bites. You pair, I think, that with Principles, and you've probably got two spectacular books for the next five years. Right. Yeah, and it's smart to be rereading it. It drives me crazy when people are reading another one, reading another one. It's like there's enough in a couple books. Just put it in place. You just miss things, especially while you're driving. You miss things. And especially Ray Dalio's book is so dense with so much advice that you can keep reading it and, you know, sort of new things stick more than other times with you. Yeah, I think that's where our learning goes. I have a, a client in, in Geneva in Switzerland, and he, he will only read a book that's tied to something he's working on over the next three months. So like if he's reading about people or if he's worrying about people issues, he'll read about people, people stuff. He won't read about marketing because it's not, it's not really going to sink in. How do you, um, how do you measure your customer engagement? We measure it by, um, well, obviously, um, we're always 
tracking, you know, the website in terms of, you know, viewership and people messaging and inquiring on the website. Um, but which we, we have two different types of customers, right? So we have landlords and we have guests. Are you asking more about one side or the other or just in general? Yeah. Who do you believe your true customers of all those? I, you know, our first and foremost customer is landlords because without them, we don't have guests and we're very focused on growing our landlord base. So I would say um, we're measuring customer engagement the most by number of signups coming in through our website, um, you know, uh, through, you know, SEO and, and social media um, and making sure that we have landlords flowing in constantly. Um, and then also when we are sending out, um, you know, blasts, email blasts to landlords um, to see who's interested in leasing with us, we're always tracking, you know, the percentage of click throughs, things like that. Um, and, and, you know, feedback reviews that we're getting from landlords are, are key, key metrics for us. Do you do net promoter score at all? Do we do what? Sorry. Do you use a net promoter score? Yeah. I mean, my partner, he's handled more of that. I'm more heavy on like the operations and sales, but he's, he's definitely used that. Yes. Yeah. Take, take a look at that as an opportunity with landlords. How many landlords do you service currently? So currently we have about six. Um, well, we have landlords, like we have our, um, our, the ones that we've guaranteed the rent. So we've taken over the lease and we have about 59 of those. And then we have about another, um, it's about 60, 60 odd landlords that they're homeowners and they need, you know, they need part-time property management when they travel, go away for the summer. Um, so those are our profit share homes. So we have kind of two our meat and potatoes in terms of our offering is our rent guarantee, but then we also do profit share um, with, you know, people who are, who are still yeah. occupying their home at least part-time. That's so cool. It's a great market for sure. Um, leveraging technology for a second. How do you guys internally leverage technology? What, what are your favorite technology tools or, or um, hacks that you're using to scale? Yeah. Well, um, we built, you know, a rent guarantee tool. Um, which is basically a quoting tool that allows us to um, provide an offer, um, you know, to the landlords that are looking for a, um, you know, a full-time tenant, we become their tenant, right? We're their tenant and their manager. Um, so we built that. That is definitely like our, um, the biggest game changer, you know, in terms of just being able to go online, type in your address and get a quote. And the quote is completely accurate because you pick all of the amenities of your home. You can make adjustments, you know, if you have a private, if you have a pool, if you have this kind of parking, an elevator, whatever it might be in your home. Um, and the only reason we would ever change it is if we get to the home and it's not what you said it was, right, or it's not in good condition, we would have to adjust. Um, but other than that, it is really um, a way that they can lease in under 24 hours, have their home rented, and then we go furnish it and start you know, occupying it as tenants. So we have that, um, and we have an automated home leasing process is all, all through a dashboard that we've created for landlords. So they can, um, once they sign the lease, we, um, you know, they can see all their rent payments. They can approve and manage repairs to the home on their, through their dashboard. Um, we also created a super host, um, a super host matching process so that they're matched with homes based on what they're looking for, you know, proximity to them, how big of a home they, you know, they're comfortable with. They can see, you know, all the homes that are available for, um, for management and be paired with that. Okay. Um, Hang on. Walk, walk me through that. 
Walk me, through, walk me through that one. So, so you take people that are super hosts and you give them a property to kind of put under their name then? Yeah, well, to put under their management. So to you know, there are on the ground property partners is what we call them. They're the eyes and ears of the company in terms of, um, you know, what's going on in our, in our homes. So what we do is if you're a super host and, you know, you're on Airbnb and you're like, oh, I would take on some more properties. I'm interested in making some money. Some do it full time. Some do it part time. You know, it's part time. Um, they go on our website and they just have to, you know, show us that they have this Airbnb profile. You know, they show us the link to their profile. We can see, OK, they really are a super host. They have, you know, 200 reviews. We do a quick review process of uh, a review all of them. Um, and then they can see the homes that we've recently leased that are available for management. And then they can pick and choose, you know, what in their area, what works for them. But we're very big on proximity. We need our hosts to be, you know, no more than 15, 20 minutes away from the home so they can get there at any time. That totally makes sense. That's super cool. So, so that's, that explains why you'll take a, a higher percentage than than would be normal. Yes. So you're, exactly. you're really running it for the homeowner. Um, you mentioned that, that you went two hands off on something. How do you find the balance now from going two hands off and kind of abdicating to, to not micromanaging? How do you figure out that blend? And does um, it I think that you can, well, first of all, I've created, you know, hundreds of pages of manuals explaining this the business. And I've had to like, you know, they're living, breathing documents, which I always explain, please, you know, to my, anyone who works for me, like, this is a, you know, this is a living document. Let me know if there's anything that's, that, you know, you think needs to be updated. Um, so I, I would say just being able to hold people accountable, check in with them, have brief meetings, you know, unless there's a serious issue that needs to be addressed. Um, but it's always important for people to know, you know, especially if you're traveling, you're not always there in the office that um, you're still, you're still on top of things, you know, you still want you still want updates. So um, I tried to do at least weekly meetings with anyone who reports to me. Some people it's, you know, it's multiple times a week, sometimes it's five minutes. I learned that from Elon Musk, you know, it's five minute meetings, but it is very helpful because it just also gives them a, a quick little platform to address issues that might fall through the cracks. Um, so for me, I was not a meetings person and I'm still not a meet. I don't like long meetings, but I do believe that short meetings are essential to running a business so you have a lot of moving parts. So tell me a little bit about how you avoid the whole micromanaging while at the same time balancing out, um, you know, not abdicating and not just being too hands off. How do you find that balance with people and, and within the company? So um, I would say lots of creating lots of manuals is really important. So they understand your mindset, trying to get them in your head as best that they can, that you can is really the way that you, you know, that you are able to delegate properly, um, which takes time. You have to put in the time up front. I think that was hard for me in the beginning. You just want people to understand how you think and it just doesn't happen. It's a slow process. Once you feel like you've done all, you know, your due diligence in that sense, or at least you've put it all down, then um, short meetings, you know, frequent short meetings, they have they have the space to be able to address issues. You follow up, um, making sure that they're um, reporting to you on key metrics, you know, however often is necessary for, for me. Sometimes certain things I need every week, certain things I need every month. So I'm not losing sight of the business. I'm just not in the nitty gritty, you know? Yeah. I like that you just point out that some of the metrics you need weekly, some you need monthly. It, it drives me crazy when people look at the same dashboard all of the time 
when I think about my car, you know, I need to look at the speed every couple of minutes, but I only need to look at the gas, you know, once every week or two. Um, it's different, different kind of measurement time periods for each metric for sure. So let us, um, let us in on some kind of parting lesson then. If you were to have one big lesson in your career in business that's really helped you as a COO, what, it, what is it in, that you would have wished you'd known at a younger age? Well, um, I mean, I think I was a little bit idealistic in the beginning. I didn't know how hard it is to raise money, how hard it is um, that basically, I mean, I know this sounds a little bit, uh, this sounds a little bit bleak, but I mean, running your own business is hard. You have to be passionate. You really have to believe in what you're doing. You don't do this for money. There's way of many other ways to go make money work. I would say if you really just want to make money, go work for somebody else. That's my advice. I know that sounds kind of silly because obviously many entrepreneurs are making a ton of money, but I really do believe that in order to be successful, you have to believe in the mission more than your desire to, you know, just make a bunch of money because there are definitely easier routes with less roller coasters and um, less emotional, emotionally taxing, um, you know, issues that you have to deal with. You have to be able to drop everything sometimes, you know, sometimes you um, grow too fast and you have to readjust and, um, you just have to be, you have to be ready for a bumpy ride. That's all I'm going to say. I think that, I, didn't know that. I, I finally, you know, recently have got, have, have been able to come to terms with that's what really it means to run your own show. Well, I think, yeah, I, I don't think I've met a single entrepreneur ever who's ever said, wow, starting and running my own company was just way simpler than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> right. Walk in the park. Heard anyone? I had a, right. a friend of mine, Aaron, who was the co-founder of a company called iContacts, uh, and they sold for well over a hundred million a few years ago. I just saw a post of his this morning, and he saw the first email that he sent through the iContacts system, and he said that that email began the next twelve years of sleepless nights. Um, so oh I think God. I think entrepreneurs have just got to recognize that, and, and then when you're work, when you're a second in command, when you're the COO in an entrepreneurial company. It's that we're kind of strapped to that entrepreneurial roller coaster as well. In your case, you're the co-founder as well. But if you're the entrepreneur or the COO in an entrepreneurial company, you are going to ride the roller coaster. You may as well wave your arms in the air and have fun. Yeah. One other little piece of advice, I think, is that don't get caught up in titles. It doesn't matter if you're COO, CEO of a company that's not off the ground. Who cares? You know, people say, like, oh, don't you wish we're CEO? I'm like, no, I don't care about that. I only care that the company is successful and growing. And, you know, if you have a, a tiny little piece of Facebook, you're much better off than being the CEO of, you know, tens of thousands of other companies. Yeah. So. No, great, great advice. Thank you. Isabel Bernie, the COO for Vicao. Thanks very much for joining us on the Second Thanks in Command podcast. Thank you. That was awesome. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.